If you look in math now on page 149, when test companies make math tests, they make them differently. What they do is their distractors are based on page 149, one of these up here in top. It's an incorrect operation. It's an incorrect order. Decimals in the wrong place. Answers in the wrong form. For example, a percentage instead of a number. They missed a step. They included unnecessary information or there was a computational error. And one of the things you have students do at least once a week or twice a week is to take a couple of the questions that are in the book and go back and through and analyze the answer choices as to which one of these, which what each distractor was. Was it an incorrect operation? Was it an incorrect order? Was it a decimal in the wrong place? Because what you're teaching students how to do is to, how to analyze questions. So one of the things with this assignment that I would look at is what would you do then, again, to help them begin to understand these questions? I might, if I were giving this to students, as a homework, yes, that's correct, okay? Um, in math, I've often seen multiple choice questions where three of the four choices could be right based on how the student did the problem. One of the issues on this um, is that that is really, that's correct, okay? And it depends what the state scoring guide decides is correct. Um, I had, let me just say this, when I was worked for the state of Illinois, in a regional service center. I had a huge argument with the State Department, literally, because of how they were doing uh, assessments. So I just wanna tell you this story to make a point. At that time in Illinois, they were doing multiple, multiple choice questions for elementary kids and middle school kids. Do you know what I mean by multiple, multiple choice? They were multiple choice questions, but you could it means that you have an A, B, C, D, E, and you can mark B, D, and E as correct. You can mark C, D, and E as correct. You had to, there were multiple, multiple choice. In other words, you had to mark multiple answers in a multiple choice test. Okay, how, how many of you have ever seen a test like that? It's one of the hardest tests you can take. It's, it's crazy, okay? So I said they were doing this with third graders and fifth graders, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Okay. You had, they gave us practice tests for everybody to do. It was about a little boy who made a friend out of a Cool Whip container. And the question at the end of the story, and in the story, it says quite pointedly that he did not tell his mother what he was making because he wanted to surprise her. Well, that was one of the answer choice, one of the multiple, multiple choice answer choices. He, he wanted to surprise his mother. The question was, why didn't the boy tell his mother about his friend he was making? But another answer that a kid had to mark to get credit was the boy was afraid his mother would tell his father. And I said to the, the test maker, I said, look, there's no father in the story. That is not even a, a choice that a gifted kid would never mark that. I said, there's no father there. He said, well, it's a possibility. I said, for whom? If you grow up in a household where there's no father, you're not going to mark that choice either. Okay. 
So why he said, well, it's a possibility. He said, test questions should have both probability and possibility. I said, I don't agree. Possibility is based on individual schema. Okay. And so one of the things that happened then as a result of that, they only did it a couple of years and they dropped it. But it, it's the whole conversation about what is a correct answer choice. One of the things we found in Texas when we analyzed the state assessment questions is that they were accepting, it's exactly what you talked about, they were accepting only a certain procedure or process in that answer choice. So that's why the analysis of question becomes critical. It also helps you analyze uh, where you're, what you're doing with your own test. Now, I wanna show you one more thing in this assignment that I just loved, okay? I just love this. And I don't know which teacher this came from, but I wanna show you how they took this information from the poem. I like this lesson. I don't know where it came from, but I like it, okay? I like the science one too for a different reason, okay? The complex text, the uh, graphic at the end, the organizer. But in this one, you run them through this, poem, the piece of literature, you have a series of information about it, then you have multiple choice questions, then you take it and translate it into another form, which is in writing that involves a rubric, okay? So they have to take information and put it into writing that involves a rubric. Now, one of the things I did to, because you've, you've taken Basic detailed learning, you're taking it and you're putting it in an, an analysis, a patterning form, and then they have to write it into their own words. Recently, I read research that if you make students write, okay, you they learn more. Uh, something about brain processing. What I would say also, I would have added I like to add one more step on this, and this is how I got more, even more uh, higher achievement. But you ask the student after they write their paper to go back over this rubric and highlight it. What, particularly for your IB kids, okay, and your eighth graders, go back and highlight where they, they think their paper was on this rubric, okay? Then you go back with a different color highlighter and you highlight where you think they performed. And then what I would do is I would make them as part of their next assignment to give me a plan about how they were going to address the discrepancy. Because what you are doing, yes, we usually wait to college, but that you can do it much younger than that. I did, okay? And what you're doing is you are asking them to go back and analyze their own work. And if you do that, you will see a huge jump in achievement because they begin to know what the criteria is that they're held accountable for. So I loved uh, these rubrics in both the, the organizers in both science and um, language arts because you're, you're moving them up to the next level, okay? Um, so let's take a 15-minute uh, break, and then we are going to come back, and I want to show you a couple strategies uh, in research-based strategies that really have high payoff. I want to talk about uh, some issues that you are 
that students from poverty, some conceptual frames, some, some issues that you're going to want to uh, have tools for, uh, particularly for your kids who are near proficient and low, uh, not proficient, okay? Um, and I want to now focus on them a little bit um, and some tools you can use to move them up. One of the things is, is that Piaget and strategies, if you look at page 191, what you will see is that Piaget and strategies are 1.28 effect size. In other words, you get almost three years of growth if you build in some sort of strategies that will help them with uh, process skills. And I want to show you one on page 192 that we you can do online and you can do in person. But one of the biggest problems students have is how you take information from different sources and put it together in a new source. And I absolutely love this tool. Uh, and what you do on this is you can do it online and they create folders online. And each folder, you have them put on the outside of the folder or somewhere near the folder, 4321, whatever. But it tells them how many pieces of information need to be in that folder. Let me give you an example at a simpler level. I had a friend who taught second grade. And this school district, a second grader had to do a research paper on at second grade. Her kids were second language learners and kids from poverty, and she didn't want them to fail. So this was she did this was when we were in person. What she did is she gave them this a manila folder and six envelopes. They glued the envelopes to the folder. And she said, you're all going to do a report on an animal. And what they did is what did they want to know about an animal? So they brainstormed. Well, they wanted to know uh, a description of the animal. So on the first envelope, they wrote description. Then they wanted to know where they lived, habitat. Then they wanted to know who their enemies were. Then they wanted to know what their habits were. And then interesting facts about them. And then bibliography cards, their sources. And then what they did is on the outside, she wrote in 4321 because she didn't want them to have cards about one thing and nothing about something else. So as they put those pieces of information in those folders, like maybe they got one sentence about the enemy, they put it in that folder and cross off a number. And then they put in the bibliography folder where they got that information. What happened then as a result of that, when they got, when it got time to write their paper, all they had to do was go in each folder, write that paragraph, and they did a paper. What you're doing is you're teaching them how to do part to whole of information. It's an absolutely unbelievable skill, particularly in middle school kids. So one of the things I would build into assignments is this technique of taking information from different sources and putting it into a whole. It's a simple way to teach that process and you're given a mental model or a visual to do it. Another issue that you have with middle school kids who come out of poverty, and this is for science, social studies, ALA, is fluency. They can't write. They don't know how to write very well. And it shows up particularly in their written samples. But also, if you have open-ended questions they have to fill out, 
they have difficulty with those as well. So there is a tool here to build fluency and it is in your book on page 198. That's one of my favorite tools uh, for building fluency in students who come with very little fluency. Um, and it's simple and it comes, it uses this graphic system. So what we tell kids is this, that it's easy to write. And I did this with ninth graders who could, who were having difficulty writing. So I worked with ninth graders who functioned at the second, third, fourth, fifth grade level. And you can, you can significantly, after a year, I had 85% of them passing state assessment. You can do it. But this is a tool I use to help do that. I told him that sentences start with a capital and end with a mark. So they make this on their paper, what you see rare in the very beginning. Then it always has a subject and it always has a verb. One of the things that is, I'm not telling you anything you don't know about the role of texting right now and what texting is doing to writing, okay? And the argument is even out there, you don't have to know how to write anymore, but that would not be correct because the business contracts and the legal contracts are in formal register, they're written. So any child who can't negotiate that is going to have a lot, it's going to really knock their job prospects. Okay. So the straight line is the subject. The wavy line is the verb. So when I first started writing, working with my freshmen, they would, they, all they could write was I, I went, I said, that's not enough. Okay. So they said, well, that's all I can write. So I said, I need you to add three triangles. And triangles answer one of four questions. When, where, how, or why, okay? You will see those triangles down there. So I'd say, look, it's so easy. I need you to add three triangles. So I demonstrate for them. I said, I went where? To the store, why? To buy cigarettes, when? Over lunch. The bottom line is that's what, these are ninth graders, okay? That's what they told me, okay? I said, see, that wasn't hard at all, okay? You can do that. You can add triangles. So then as I got their writing samples back from them and they're writing from them, I'd say, you can't hand this in to me until I have at least 15 triangles in your writing. So what you're doing is you're building in the fluency for them to get what you need from them so that they can do it. And then I'd say, now you can make your writing more interesting if you put a triangle in front of it and say, during school, comma, I went to the store to buy cigarettes. What you're doing is you're moving it around. Then rectangles were adjectives. So basically triangles were adverbs, rectangles were adjectives. But what you're doing is you're building in fluency. And it was a very fast, quick way to build it in, build up their vocabulary and build up their language. It is when you look at student work and you see that a child isn't fluent, then you can say, here's the tool you need to do to become fluent. And it works because it's so simple. Now, another tool I wanna give you that I absolutely love is in your book on page 203. And this is a tool that you use across the board. This one I just love. This one will significantly jump your achievement scores in language arts. 
by schools who use this, they report to me that they jump their scores by seven to eight points per child in language arts. These page 203 and 204 is this. It gives prefixes, root words, suffixes, and a worksheet. And the bottom line is that if, these, if students know these three sheets, they can figure out what 90% of the words in the English language mean. It's a fabulous tool for your IB kids if they want to take the SAT or ACT early. It's a fabulous tool for your students who are regular students. You could only calculate about 35% of word meaning from context. So what you want to be able to do is give them the tools in your subject area to figure it out. Like one of the things when we looked at that science lesson, that science lesson was really heavy in vocabulary load. Well, what you can do is that vocabulary load is significantly reduced if you have a way to break down the words. So why, here's where kids get confused, and I want to show you this. You have prefixes, root words, and suffixes. And what you do is you look at this and you go, okay, twice a week, you only do this twice a week in your subject matter, you select two words that you think kids aren't going to know twice a week. And you, they do this activity on them. So perhaps one of the words is uh, egregious. So the child writes over here on page 204, egregious, E-G-R-E-G-I-O-U-S. So then they go back to these sheets. E is the prefix. What does E mean? Out, exactly, okay. What does G-R-E-G mean? Group, yeah. What does O-U-S mean? Means fully, okay. So full of, so they'll look at you and they'll go out group full of, and they'll go, that makes no sense at all. And we say to them, you have to move the words around. It means you are fully out of the group. Egregious means you're so bad, you're so far out of the group. Egregious, okay? And so once half this happens, by the end of first semester, your students tend to know about half of these. By the end of the year, they know a lot of them. If you do that sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade, by the time they get into high school, they know, they can figure out almost what every word means. And it makes a huge difference in them as they negotiate your, your content. Uh, how many of you would consider using any of the strategies I talked about so far? Because it makes a huge difference in their ability to negotiate just written language. Now, if you will go in your book back to, I want to show you a way that we ask our coaches to help us okay, with language. And it's in your book on page 223. One of the things we help ask our coaches to do is on page 223. And we ask our coaches to embed adverbs into instruction in PE. They're a natural. And the problem is that casual register or the register that's used in uh, poverty most frequently has almost no adverbs and no prepositions in it and it impacts math tremendously, okay? What we've learned about our kids in math is this, that if they're two to three grade levels below in math, they actually don't know up from down, front from back, top from bottom, and math is about that. 
how columns, rows, everything. Uh, how many of you who teach math have a problem with your kids jumbling all their problems into a, in their, their problems overlap each other when they work? How many of you have had that seen that happen when you were in person? Yes. Uh-huh. See, they, this whole concept of space isn't there at all. And so one of the things is in a high poverty household, when something falls on the floor, the parent will say, get that. In middle class, they'll say, please pick that fork up from under the table. In wealth, they say, please pick that Queen Anne dinner fork up from under the Chippendale table. There's a lot more specificity of language in wealth than there is in middle class. Well, when you don't have adverbs and you don't have prepositions, then math is a huge problem. Across, down, over, under, all of that stuff is a problem. The organization of a math problem is a nightmare in a virtual environment. I totally get that. And one of the things that you do to, to, uh, to address that is what you do is you make them make a table before they do the problem. And you take a table, you know, you can make a table on, on uh, a word and you put four boxes in there and you say you can only have one problem in each box. That's it. Okay. So the thing of it is, is or you can put boxes around your problems so that they can only have one problem in each box. But otherwise, it's a nightmare, okay? They run them. Or just simply following directions to get to a new tab or page, yes, because the adverbs aren't there. So we ask the coaches in, in uh, physical ed, will you help us teach uh, prepositions and adverbs? When, you know, the ball went under, the ball went over, the... I mean, all this language and terminology that's actually critical from math. And one other thing, we ask uh, art teachers to help with uh, mental models. And I want to explain mental models in a minute and why that's critical for your instruction. And it was in the book. But art teachers are instrumental in mental models, helping figure out mental models. Um, so that's there. In your book on page 194 and 195 and 196, part of this was in what you read about. But I want to give you a concept here about how you start using mental models to help students break down uh, patterns of writing. So one, one is the hand, one is the ladder, one is the car for story structure, one is compare, contrast, and one is persuasive, the hamburger, which you mentioned. The research on reading comprehension is this. You either sort based on your purpose for reading or the structure of the text. So when you're working to get kids to understand text, what's their purpose for it and what's the structure of the text? So one of the things that I made students identify is tell me what the structure is, because that's what's going to tell you what the important information is when they start looking through things. Let me ask you this question. How many of you, okay, when you, how many of you, before you read a book, look at the table of contents and look at the bibliography? How many of you do that before you read a book? Okay, let me ask you this question. Why do you read the table of contents? You also want to know how it's organized, right? And she says to know which area she wants to read, okay? 
Why? And the flow, right. Why do you read the bibliography? Bingo. All right. What are their sources? Okay. And who who contributed to it? Where they get their stuff? You know, because I wanna I wanna look to see that. Okay, can I trust this author? Yes. Okay. Um, so what you're doing now, and this is just a curiosity because I love to read. How many of you, um, just out of curiosity, and then I'll say something about getting middle kids to school kids to read. How many of you actually read, have about five to eight books going at any given time? You're multiple books going. You're reading multiple books at the same time. What? <laughs> I I used to no okay some people go no all right okay how many of you listen to more than one podcast at or have more than one podcast going I mean you're listening to them at different times of year okay let me ask you this next question how many of your students here's a question for information sources for your middle school kids how many of your students get a lot of information off of TikTok okay how many of them get their information off of YouTube. So these are information sources they're using, you know. 